Amen. And thank you, Pastor Steve and worship team for uh, leading us so very well here this morning. As has been mentioned, we'll be studying Acts chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and make your way there. And as you're turning there, well, let me ask you a question to consider this morning. Would you agree with me that there are certain things in life that are needed, but we just don't want to do them? For example, cleaning the bathroom toilets in your home. It's something that we most certainly need to do, and if we put off, we will most certainly regret. But most of us, given the choice between organizing the garage, changing the light bulbs in the guest bedroom, raking the leaves one more time, we're going to choose those options over going to the bathroom and cleaning it. Of course, the, the principle in life is you, you might not want to do those things. You might not enjoy cleaning your bathroom, but if you don't do it, there will be a day in which you regret not staying up on cleaning your bathroom. We tend to all look for the easiest, the most enjoyable in the moment solution that, that presents itself to us, but by God's grace, as we mature both in life and in Christ, we begin to see the, the value of not looking for the quick and the easy fix, but instead we see the value in striving for long-term gains. None of us came out of the womb thinking that way. None of us, when we were little children, saw the, the value of long-term gains and putting off short-term pleasures. Do, do you agree with that for a moment? You didn't come out of the womb thinking that way. If you don't agree with me, let's call your mom after the service and find out how sanctified you were in those beginning days. And so while it's true that in our own homes we need to not focus on temporary results, but, but long-term gains, such as cleaning the bathroom. I believe that it's equally true that way in the, in the life and the health of the local church. There's all sorts of things that go into being part of a church family that, well, if it was left to our devices, we'd probably just put it off or not do it. But we see, because of God's Word, the way that we're called to live, and, and therefore we choose to do that. Take, for example, the, the idea that we're studying this morning of being committed to one another and how essential us being committed to one another is to the running of the local church, even to make Sunday morning happen today. Take, for example, if we all forsook our commitments, what would happen when you showed up to the parking lot this morning? Right there, there was someone who had to show up before you unless you're the person who does this, and unlock the building and, and turn on the lights. Just imagine if that person gave up their commitments. Or there was someone who had to show up and, and to serve in the children's ministries. So just imagine if that person had forsaken their commitments. Or someone had to show up to your Sunday school room and to, to set up for Sunday school if that person had forsaken their commitments. Or someone had to prepare a sermon this morning. Or to prepare the worship set and on and on. The church, even this morning, runs 
on us being committed and dedicated to serving one another. That is hard and that is challenging, but, but in order for the church, for us to be a family that, that functions, we, we have to be committed and dedicated to one another. So we continue our series here this morning on, on being the church, and we consider this morning, what does it look like to be committed to one another? What does it look like to be committed to each other? And I think if we're honest for a moment, we all love the idea that, that people would be committed to doing all sorts of things. People would be committed to, to showing up to worship practice and, and leading. People would be committed to, to dedicating themselves to studying God's Word for, for Sunday morning, Sunday schools and children's ministries, and serving in text. We love it when others are committed, but when it comes to ourselves, we find the topic and the challenge of being committed, we find it rather difficult. So this morning as we read in Acts chapter 2, I hope that we will see three aspects of being committed that it should motivate us to be dedicated to one another. Follow along with me as I read in Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 41, all the way through the end of the passage. Verse 41, so those who received his word, they were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all of the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. We're considering this morning what it looks like to be committed to each other. And the first aspect of this that we see is we have to understand the, the steps of commitment. I mean, how do we get to being a people that are committed? Well, well, the Scripture begins to outline at least some of those steps. And the first step is that it starts with the gospel. Uh, that's where our text begins. And those who had received His word. This is actually an interesting way in which Dr. Luke, as he's writing the book of Acts, describes the response of those who heard the gospel proclaimed. It's how did they respond? They received the word. It's not usually the word that is described when it comes up against our response for salvation. For example, later in Acts 16, it's described this way, then He brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. 
We see Paul describe it that way as well in Romans chapter 10, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. But we see our response here in the text this morning being described as as receiving the Word. It has that that old idea of, of what it would look like to receive guests into one's house. We see Luke use it elsewhere in his gospel in chapter 8 where where the crowds were were welcoming, they were receiving Jesus. The concept is that the gospel was proclaimed by the apostles. Uh, By the apostles were, were men who had just shortly, right before this, they were men who were cowering. They were men who were running away from Christ and the persecution that was following. They were men who, after Christ's death, they were men who'd gone fishing. However, something changed rather dramatically at Pentecost. These men who were running, these men who were fearing for their lives, something changed at Pentecost, and that that was they had received the Holy Spirit. And when they had received the Holy Spirit, something dramatically changed in their lives. They they went from men who were running in fear to men who would say this in chapter 5, that when they stood in the presence of the council, they were rejoicing that they had been counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. They had been transformed. The gospel message had transformed the apostles from from people who were running to people who were taking a bold stand for Christ. They they had received the good news, and, and people had begun to receive this good news at the teaching of the apostles, and their lives were changed forever. So how do we as a church family grow to being committed to one another is first and foremost, it starts with the gospel of Jesus Christ and and receiving Him into your heart and receiving His Holy Spirit. But that commitment, that receiving of Christ, we should be sure to note that it's not something that should be done lightly. And it's not something that could be done easily in the sense that we can take Christ off and put him back on. In his book, The The Cost of Discipleship, a martyr, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, writes about the, the challenges that he saw in his day about what he described as cheap grace. The message of Christianity is most certainly come as you are. You don't need to have your act together to come to Jesus But the message of Christianity is not come as you are and stay as you are, but come as you are and become like Christ. Listen to this a bit lengthy excerpt from his book and the cost of discipleship. And notice how how Bonhoeffer juxtaposes the, the commitment that we need to have to Christ to what is being preached by some in his day. He says this, Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession, 
Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. That's what cheap grace is. And back then, as today, many preach this style of Christianity. But he, he also highlights what costly grace is. It's a treasure hidden in the field for the sake of which a man will go and sell all that he has. It's the pearl of great price to buy with which the merchant will sell all of his goods. It's the kingly rule of Christ for whose sake a man will pluck out his eye, which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again, the gift which must be asked for, the door at which a man much must knock. But why then is it called costly grace? He says such grace is costly Because it calls us to follow, and it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It's costly because it costs a man his life. And it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It's costly because it condemns sin, and and grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it costs God the life of his son. You were bought at a price. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of Christ, the incarnation of God. Dear brothers and sisters, if we're called to be a church that is committed to one another and committed to the gospel, it it begins with receiving the good news of Jesus. But but we must see that, that this receiving of Christ must lead to a transformed life. If there's anyone here who does not know Christ as their Lord and Savior, who hasn't received this gospel that we're talking about, I would tell you that myself and any of the pastors, we would love to sit down with you even today to talk about how you can receive Christ into your life. But understand that we cannot be a people who are committed to one another, committed to this church, if we do not start with the gospel of Jesus Christ. From there, it begins to move. The next step is there is a move of formalization. We see this, that after they'd received the word, then they were were baptized. And there were added to them that day about 3,000 souls. So we see two really important steps in the formalization process. We see persons receiving, and then they are baptized, and then they are added to the list of the church. This is the pattern not only in our text, but other texts. We saw it right before this one, although we did not study it, where Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and then you will receive the Holy Spirit. Or later in Acts chapter 8, but when they had believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom Well, what happened next in the name of Jesus Christ? They were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon, not Simon Peter, different Simon, himself believed, and after being baptized, continued with Philip and seeing the signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. 
What we see in the Bible is that it is a short walk from receiving, from accepting Christ, to being baptized and being a formal member of a local church. And you're attending, if you didn't know, by the way, you're attending a Baptist church. And what that means is that we hold to this historic view of what baptism means and how it's integral to being a part, a member of the church. For example, if you could somehow go back in time and talk to Paul, talk to Peter, and you'd hand them this Bible and say, will you baptize this? What they would do is they'd find the nearest body of water and they would immerse it all the way in and pull it up and ruin this brand new Bible. They wouldn't sprinkle it. Baptism means to immerse in water. And our church has taken that position that it happens after salvation because of what this and other texts talk about. That it is a step of obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ and that when a person is baptized, they're brought into the membership of a local church. While we don't know everything about the earliest forms of the church and how it was governed, we see, even from this text, that there was some sort of list. There, there was some sort of way of knowing who was a part of the body and who was not part of the body. That list was used for things like the widow's list that helped the church know who was to be cared for or in the distribution of food. The point was clear. They knew who was a part of the body and who was not. And so you may find yourself uncomfortable with what the Scriptures teach about baptism, what the Scriptures teach about church membership. But remember, it's Christ who bought the church. It's Christ who paid for His body, and it's Christ who determines how it should be run. It's a bit like a ring ceremony, if you kind of think about it for a moment, in a wedding. While a husband, a potential husband, may may offer a wife a ring as a token in the engagement period, it's not until the giving and the exchanging of vows and the giving and exchanging of rings that that person is then married. Meaning, you don't do the ring ceremony when you're dating. You do it at the altar. The same is true of the church. And I realize that some in this room, or some of you who have friends, might find that a bit of a touchy topic. But the pattern that we always see in Scripture is persons receive the word, then they are baptized, then they are added to the church. So I might encourage anyone here who calls himself a follower of Christ to consider, have I followed those steps that are being described in our text this morning? If I want to be part of a church that is committed to one another and I've received the gospel, then am I following through on the formalized steps of building God's church by being committed to one another? This is what the text tells us to do, to be committed to one another by being entrenched and soaked in the gospel and then following the steps that are outlined. We also see in the text that there is an ongoing work of commitment. There's an ongoing work. 
Would you agree with me that whenever you make a commitment, in, implicit in that commitment is that there will be an ongoing level of work on your part? Think through what happens in a marriage ceremony for a moment. When, when two couples make, when, they, when folks make a commitment to one another, they're committing to an ongoing work. Or when parents bring children into the world, they're committing to an ongoing work. The same is true in a church family. You can't make a commitment to join the church and then believe that that's not going to require ongoing work of commitment. We see this described in our text first and foremost this way, by by a devotion to public worship and a devotion to the the study of God's Word. You use the word devotion because that's the word that comes right out of the text. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves means they were loyal to it. The congregation had heard what the apostles were teaching, and the apostles were those who were commissioned personally by Christ, who had seen the resurrection with their own eyes. They were commissioned to preach the good news. But this wasn't just a one-time devotion to to the public teaching, but it was something that was regular. It was something that was ongoing. We actually see the same word used later in our text in verse 20 or in verse 46. And day by day they were attending. They devoted themselves to the temple together with the breaking of breads in their home. The point being, as the church was birthed, as it was formed, they were dedicated to the study of God's word and to the public gathering together as the saints. While it's not as popular anymore, many of you remember or have heard about the days of traveling evangelists who who would come and visit towns. They would deliver powerful messages. People would come forward to receive salvation, and, and then those traveling preachers would leave. And sadly, what happened so many times in those stories is that people would fall away from following Christ. Because, as Christ would put it in Matthew 13, they had no roots. They they were not dedicated to to what we're doing here today. The the ongoing work of of gathering to study God's word and to worship. The author of Hebrews warns us against that kind of activity in Hebrews 10.25. We're called to not neglect to meet together. It was even happening back then in the early church. People weren't coming, as the habit is of some, but were to encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So we're, we're called to the ongoing work of commitment, a, a commitment that's founded on the gospel, that, that's formalized between the brethren and sister, and that requires ongoing work. Now, I know that there would be some here, perhaps even some watching online, who who would struggle with this ongoing work of commitment to to doing that because they would say things like, well, they've been hurt by the church at some point. Maybe the formalized church, or or they've been hurt by the people of the church, and and therefore they don't want to be involved. They don't want to be committed to one another. I have no doubt that churches are full of horror stories, stories that are real. 
stories that are powerful for sure, but that doesn't give us warrant to write off the church. Just like a a parent who has been hurt by a child cannot forsake the child because of a particular pain, we cannot forsake the church, the formalized church, even if there has been pain. Sin needs to be dealt with. Of course, problems need to be solved. But we're called to continue in the ongoing work of being committed to each other by gathering together like we are today to public worship and to the study of God's Word. Last time when I was up here, I I shared the story of Cyprian, the, the bishop from North Africa, about that ransomed church. It was a powerful story about what it looked like to love one another, even in that ancient setting. Cyprian also said in in a later event that no one can have God for father who doesn't have church as mother. Now that might be a bit extreme, but just consider what he's saying there for a moment, that that if you call God your heavenly father, then, then there's something powerful to having the church and your family as well. And so I would encourage each and every one of us, as we're here today, to make sure that we're dedicated to the ongoing work of attending public worship and being committed to everything that happens here so that we can grow the way that Christ has called us to. I'd also say this, that if you know of someone in your life, in your sphere of ministry, who who you know is struggling in this way, to to being committed, that that, that you would do what God calls you to do, what what we've talked about here in Hebrews 10.25, to encourage them to not neglect the meeting together. So that might mean that part of your assignment, part of your application today is as you know individuals who are struggling with being committed, that you would go talk to them today. Can I share with you something that just, I think, drives all pastors insane for a moment? It's when somebody comes up and says, hey, hey, Pastor Josh, I just want to let you know that that so-and-so is really struggling with something. What are you going to do about it? So-and-so is really struggling to make it to church. They they haven't been in a while. What are you going to do about it? You know what I think the best answer to that question is? What are you going to do about it? Hold you accountable to talking to them. If they're called to be in the church, if they're called to be dedicated, then brothers and sisters, if you know them, go talk to them. And that as you consider your own dedication to the church, that that you would seriously examine your life, your practice, and your schedule. We're called to be committed to one another. The Bible doesn't give us a percentage of what that looks like. But I would at least go as far to say that it has to at least be 50%. Meaning you can't say that you're committed to the church, you're committed to your small group, if you're gone more than 50% of the time. I don't know what the number is that the apostles would have in mind or our Lord Jesus Christ, but I have to say 50% sounds like at least a good starting point. Some folks go from vacation to hobbies to traveling for football and on and on, even to deer hunting. And the point being that they're rarely in the church. They don't want to be committed or their schedules don't show it. I'm thankful for the power of internet. I'm thankful that our church has has these cameras that allow us to broadcast our sermons. 
especially for those who are homebound, especially for those who are sick. But let's make sure that we don't rely on technology like that to supplement what is required for being here and being committed to one another. One of the applications for you and your family might be that today that you would look at your 2024 calendar. To look at all of the events that you have planned that are going to pull you away from being here at church. And that you would say, we're going to have to cut some of those things so that we can be committed to one another. The ongoing work also talks about fellowship with one another. There is the fellowship, the breaking of the bread and, and of the prayers. The point being there that, that Christianity is not a solo sport. So many times when we talk with individuals, they, they, they love to talk about how their own private worship is, on Sunday morning is, is them doing their own thing. Christianity is not a solo sport. It involves the fellowship that we get to enjoy here on Sunday morning and the fellowship that we get to enjoy throughout the week with one another. The Bible has no concept of a Christian who is not in community, who is not part of a regular fellowship with each other. So I would encourage you, as you consider where might you need to grow, as we do the ongoing work of commitment, that, that might require you to get involved with fellowship at a very formal or informal level with the people who would call Berean Baptist their home as well. Lastly, then, we see from the text the, the results of their commitment. The results of their commitment. There was, as the text describes, awe that overtook the community. And awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Some of you in your translations might even have the word fear there. There is the connection between the fear of the Lord and, and worship. What led to this fear, in part, this awe, in part, was that the, the apostles were doing miracles. That was a result of their commitment to the, the G, to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Commentators James Hamilton and Brian Vickers say it this way, Only the apostles performed wonders and signs. And why did they do this? It was establishing their authority and their continuity with the, the ministry of Jesus. So as you've studied your Bible and, and you've wondered why were they doing these miracles, uh, the reason for that was it was establishing their authority and continuity with the ministry of Christ. Just as with Jesus, the miracles attested to the reality and the authenticity of the kingdom. Such miracles, especially healings, pointed to the fulfillment of kingdom promises and to the holistic and eschatological nature of the new covenant kingdom, an idea taken up directly in the next chapter. Further, there's no ongoing pattern throughout Acts that either indicates or stipulates you're wondering about here today, signs and wonders as either normal or typical for believers gathering. The point was that as, as the Gospels preached and laid down the, the finished word that we have here today, 
that they were performing signs and miracles to authenticate the message of Jesus Christ. Some from time to time have have longed for, wished for, even said, you know, the church would be so much better today if those things were happening. You might even have thought that yourself. Man, if we were just still having miraculous healings, if the gift of tongues still existed today, the church would be so much better. And the answer to that is no, it wouldn't. It wouldn't be for two reasons. First, if it was, then God would have ordained it. But second, we see God's people constantly not following the signs. Over and over, God does miraculous gifts in the Bibles, and that is never what truly changes someone's heart. In fact, even in Jesus' ministry here on earth, after doing a number of signs, the Pharisees said, well, then what sign do you give that we may see and believe you? What work will you perform They were never satisfied with the signs. The only thing that leads to true belief and true repentance is the effectual call of the Holy Spirit that turns us to God. The thing that should lead to us seeing awe and wonder, the results that we would see are transformed lives. And as we look around at ourselves and at others, we should see transformed lives and that should lead to a sense of awe that only the grace of Jesus Christ could transform me, could transform a group of us to faithfully following and being committed to Him. The second result that we see from our text is a generosity, a generosity that is super natural. And all who believed were together and all had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as many as had need. Now, this is not a model for Christian communism. Let me just say that for a moment. That is not me saying or the Scriptures saying we need to get to Christian communism. Instead, what it is pointing to is a generosity that was supernatural, that was meeting the incredible needs of that day and that moment. The effect of being committed to one another, the effect of gathering regularly for the public teaching of the Word and for worship, the effect of transformed lives was that there was a generosity that existed in the church that was supernatural. And I'll tell you that my wife and I, we, we actually see that sort of supernatural generosity here at Berean. Even last Sunday, as you formally welcomed our family here, so many of you even stayed like 45 minutes after the event was over, and you blessed us so richly with those welcome cards. I think that that is a result, a direct result of your commitment to the gospel, your commitment to one another. And now, as you've heard us talking about so many times, and we're considering that today we're, we're here on Commitment Sunday to make our capital campaign commitments out of a heart that overflows from generosity because we're committed to the gospel and we're committed to one another. As we mentioned, Christianity is not a solo sport. Christianity is also not a group of people who are maybe Christians. 
Rather, our God is a God of commitment, and he wants us to be a people of commitment. I believe that investing in children's ministries and in the spaces that we have been talking about here, investing in the next generation is going to pay off just like it paid off in the early church. So we've been talking to you about the capital campaign, about the proposed expansion, and today is the day that we're asking for you to make commitments so that the leadership of this church can provide the leadership that it needs to do. We've been praying, we've been talking, now is the time to commit. And so if you brought your commitment cards after the service, as you exit, there will be individuals who are there to receive those in boxes. If you forgot your card, there are some cards out in the lobby. But I would encourage everyone here who calls Berean their home to make some sort of commitment so that we can invest in the next generation because that sort of commitment to one another overflows into a supernatural generosity. The last result that we see from our text this morning was a continual growth. The last result from this commitment they had to the gospel, this commitment that they had to one another, was continual growth. And the Lord added to their number, and notice it was the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Just consider that for a moment. A few short weeks ago, the Messiah was being nailed to the tree. All hope seemed lost. People were fleeing in terror, denying and lying that they knew Christ. And yet in a few short weeks, as Christ promised to build His church, thousands were being added And he was adding to their number day by day. You and me, we are a descendant of that very moment. When people were faithfully following Christ, they were committed to the word, committed to each other, and committed to supernatural generosity. Now that doesn't mean that Christ has promised to grow every church in every place at every time. But I do believe That as a church family, that if we are committed to following the Word of God, that God will continue to bless us here. Commitment is hard. And frankly, it's not always something that any of us want to do. But it is a bit like cleaning the bathroom. If we don't do it, if we do not commit, the results will be terrible. Will you join me in prayer? Our Father, we come before you today and we offer you thanks. And we confess, Father, that we are a people who struggle with commitment. We are a people who struggle to be committed to you and to committed to one another. But as we've seen from this text, the the results of being committed to you and the results to being committed to one another leads to something powerful, leads to something supernatural. So, Father, would you give us grace today? Not only just in Commitment Sunday, but as we go forth from here, that we would be committed to to the public gathering of worship and to the public teaching of your word. That we'd be committed to fellowship, committed to studying your word, 
all so that you might be glorified and you might look good. As we go from here, Father, help us to grow in our commitments to you and to one another. We ask this in your Son's most precious and holy name. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.